Welcome to a special emergency episode of The Term, a podcast about the Supreme Court by Law360. Today, Friday, June 24, 2022, the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade and upheld a Mississippi law banning abortions after 15 weeks of pregnancy. Joining me now is Law360 Supreme Court Editor-at-Large, Jimmy Hoover. Welcome, Jimmy. Thanks, Natalie. Yes, it is a historic day, and so we felt like we needed to record a special emergency episode to kind of break down the more than 200 pages of opinions associated with uh, this morning's decision in Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health overturning the constitutional right to abortion set nearly 50 years ago in 1973 in Roe versus Wade. We're going to talk with a special guest about the impacts of the decision, what the justices said, what changed, what didn't from the initial leaked version published in Politico in May, and much more. So here to help us break everything down with this mammoth ruling is Professor Carolyn Shapiro. She is a former guest of the podcast and a constitutional scholar and the founder and co-director of Chicago Kent's Institute on the Supreme Court of the United States. Welcome to the show, Carolyn. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. So I guess the first question I'll ask um, is just what is your reaction to seeing the news drop this morning at 10 a.m. that the Supreme Court, by a 5-4 to four vote, had overturned Roe versus Wade and Planned Parenthood versus Casey? Well, uh, my first reaction was that I wasn't surprised. After all, we saw the draft leak in May, but I also wasn't surprised by that draft itself. It seemed pretty clear to me that that was where a majority of the court was. And I should add that even though the chief justice didn't join the other five conservatives to say that the, uh, the to overrule Roe versus Wade outright, he's certainly willing to move in that direction. There's nothing in his opinion to suggest he thinks in the long run the court shouldn't do what it in fact did today. Well, that's a really interesting point and one that I, th- I think we should clarify right here. So the, the, the official vote to formally overturn Roe versus Wade in its entirety and get rid of the constitutional right to abortion was a five to four vote um, in that Chief Justice Roberts didn't go that far in signing Justice Alito's majority opinion. Rather, he still would have upheld Mississippi's 15-week abortion ban, which I recall when this case was first taken up, uh, abortion advocates were very clear that a vote to uphold Mississippi's 15-week ban was, in essence, overturning Roe in that it had established and protected abortions before viability. So there's a little wrinkle there, but you're saying that he wanted to take a more modest approach in rolling back abortion rights as opposed to one fell swoop. Yes, I, I think he's ultimately would agree with the outcome of today's majority opinion. But no, he said that that's not what this ca- case was originally supposed to be about. It's not what the question presented was, which is true. It is, however, what all of the parties said the case was ultimately about, both sides um, and the United States government said what the case was ultimately about. So I don't think it's surprising that the court did what it did. And in some ways, I think it's preferable to have the court be clear about what it's doing with respect to abortion rather than uh, sort of hollow it out step by step, but leave it at least, you know, a claim that it's that there are still abortion rights. But now we know there is no constitutionally protected right to abortion. And as you noted, the substantive part of Alito's opinion really hasn't changed um, from that draft opinion that we saw. But was there anything that you noticed in this final version of his opinion that you took note of um, or any differences or toned down language? 
Well, I have to admit, I haven't had a chance to compare in detail the the draft with this version. I know there are a fair number of people who've got red lines up online, but the report seems to be that there aren't a lot of major changes, but I can't speak directly to that. I can say that one piece of his opinion that I find particularly uh, frustrating is his discussion of reliance interests. He says, essentially, the reliance interests that Casey spoke about uh, are not the real reliance interests that the court considers when it comes to stare decisis. Uh, that that's really concrete reliance interests like contract or property rights. Now, I, I don't, in some ways, don't know where to start with in responding to that. Um, but you know, women all over the country make decisions about where to live, where to go to school, wh- what kind of relationships to be in, based on their assumption that if they need to have an abortion, they will have access to it. That is now completely upended. Uh, and so many people, including people who, you know, just maybe last month decided to put down a deposit to attend school in a state that now in which abortion is now illegal, uh, might they, they do have real reliance interests. And that's leaving aside the bigger, broader societal questions and the issue that uh, the, the sort of underlying theme when in the discussion of reliance, which is essentially well, you don't really have to have sex or you can use contraception and then you won't need to worry about it. Uh, there, some forms of contraception may themselves become illegal, uh, may already be illegal in a couple of states, things like IUDs that prevent implantation, uh, certain types of IUDs. But uh, it, it's, a, it's a very, uh, it's, it's a really a very narrow and, uh, and blinkered way of thinking about the way people rely on the law. And that's explored a lot in the the dissent as well. The, the reliance interests of, yes. of 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 Roe and Casey, which have stood for for obviously decades now. But before we get to the the dissents, uh, I guess I just ask because I I had also kind of like skimmed through and and seen some of those kind of comparison reports between the leaked draft and the final version, and there doesn't seem to be very much, if any, substantive changes other than to add responses to you know say concurrences. Or the dissent, and I mean, what does that tell you that the court essentially did not move an inch from Alito's underlying conclusion, um, which I guess he came to or he arrived to months ago? It sounds like this was pretty set in stone from the beginning. I think it supports the hypothesis, and just to emphasize, it is a hypothesis or, a, or speculation that the leak actually came from somebody on the right. Uh, because I, I think it made it that much harder for the justices who had originally said that they would go along with overruling Roe to to change their position. Uh, I think it it may, would make it look like, or there would be a fear that it would look like they were responding to public pressure, they were responding to the protests. In the case of Justice Kavanaugh, they were responding to the fact that somebody actually was threatening him with violence. Uh, no, ju- they, none of them want to have that be the appearance. And so I think that I'm not remotely surprised that there is virtually, you know, that there's not any significant or really meaningful change between the prior opinion and this one. Now, of course, that might have happened anyway. I can't say that there would have been bigger changes in the absence of the leak. I, we certainly don't know that. Today, we got to hear from some of the other justices as well, though. Uh, Thomas uh, Roberts and the dissent, the joint dissent. Um, 
let's start to dig into those a little bit. Um, you've already noted the threat to the right to contraception. Um, that was a big part of Justice Thomas's concurrence. Can you kind of dig into, you know, the notable parts of that concurrence? Yeah, so Justice Thomas says that, as he's been saying for a long time, this isn't new, that he doesn't think that the Due Process Clause has anything to say about any substantive rights at all. So he thinks that it, the Due Process Clause is only about process and that it has always been a mistake to locate fundamental rights, including the right to marry, the, uh, the right to to reject certain forms, uh, to re like, right to reject medical care, medical treatment that you don't want, the right to contraception, et cetera, to locate those rights in the due process clause. Now, he's, and he calls for a complete revisiting of all of the court's substantive due process precedent. Now, he doesn't actually, I don't think, if I have to go back and be sure, I don't think he cites the sort of the original two precedents, which have to do with parental control of children, of decisions about how to raise their children. But in general, when he's talking about this line of cases, he's talking about the right not to be sterilized, the right to have contraception, the right to marry, et cetera. Now, he doesn't say necessarily that there are no such rights. He says maybe they're protected by the Privileges and Immunities Clause and not by the Due Process Clause, but we'd have to do completely separate analysis to figure that out. Uh, so in the meantime, we have to over overrule those cases, right? And in the meantime, we should, well, he says revisit, but yes, he wants to overrule those cases because he doesn't think the substantive due process clause has anything to say about any of those rights. So that's been a, a real point of concern for a lot of people since the initial uh, leaked draft itself is that, you know, what, what would this do to other unenumerated rights that are based upon, you know, the same, I guess, you could use the phrase constitutional foundation. And Justice Alito, in his majority opinion, he says, uh, you know, quote, we emphasize that our decision concerns the constitutional right to abortion and no other right. Nothing in this opinion should be understood to cast doubt on precedents that do not concern abortion. And I was reading through the, the, the dissent and they seem to think, uh, the three liberal justices, that is, that, you know, no one should be really... Uh, you know, placated by those words. Yeah, I'm not very reassured by those words at all. What he says is, well, abortion is different because abortion involves the taking of a fetal life. And it's true that these other rights don't implicate that consideration. Although, if you believe, as some people claim to, that uh, from the moment of fertilization, uh, a a zygote is a human being uh, that does actually implicate potentially some forms of medical care and even certain types of, of contraception like non-hormonal IUDs. Um, but, they, uh, but leaving that aside, the rest of the, the um, analysis, the actual meat of how he identifies what kinds of rights are, as he puts it, and the court has itself put it, deeply rooted in our history and tradition, there's nothing special about abortion uh, in, in terms of that analysis. And there's no reason why a court, a, a subsequent court, wouldn't apply the same analysis to look at contraception, to look at uh, the right to same-sex sexual intimacy, et cetera. It's really, uh, it, it's a dodge. It, it's a, and I, I don't, I'm not very reassured by those words at all. We've already talked about 
some of the possible impacts of this opinion and this decision. Can you kind of speak more broadly, though, to what might come next in terms of future litigation, possible legislative trends, just overall impact? Well, we already know that there is that there are many states, about half the states, have laws on the books that effectively make abortion illegal in most, if not all, cases right now. Uh, now, there are going to be challenges to some of those laws. They're going to be some of the, and some of those challenges may be successful uh, under state constitutions, under other principles. I don't, I don't know, but we're going to immediately have a lot of that kind of litigation. There's also going to be states that attempt to make it illegal for a woman to leave one state where abortion is illegal and go to another state where it's legal for purposes of obtaining an abortion or for somebody to help a person do that. Um, I live in Illinois. We have robust protections for reproductive rights here, and all of our neighbors do not. So there will inevitably be a lot of people coming from the surrounding states into Illinois for purposes of obtaining reproductive health care. And at least in Missouri, which is one of our neighboring states, there's already talk of making that illegal. That's going to open the door to a lot of litigation around the right to travel, around the ability of a state to have its laws reach conduct that takes place in another state, et cetera. And I don't think that any of us know really what the outcome of those cases is going to be. And the you know this assumes, of course, that the that the pregnant person is able to travel to these neighboring states because some of these states are you know not border states by a jurisdiction that has those robust protections, a right? Absolutely, right. There are going to be many, many women and other people who need abortion care who are not going to be able to go somewhere where it's available. That's already true, but those numbers are going to be substantially larger. We're going to see people die. We're going to see a lot of really terribly tragic stories that, that, that have been avoidable until now because people could access the health care that they, that they needed. So we talk about the, the, the impact on the ground for the country. Um, let's talk about the impact for the institution. So I recall when uh, this case was argued, Justice Sotomayor had that really kind of uh, evocative statement that, um, you know, th th could the Supreme Court survive the stench as an institution of overturning Roe versus Wade? And in, you know, in just a few years, the, 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 under the Trump administration, the court has been reshaped and it has done just that. So what are the implications for the institution itself? That's a really good question. It, it's really a uh, at a crossroads, and I don't think we know exactly how it's going to play out. It's worth saying that the court has been remade uh, through some extremely anti-democratic, small-d democratic processes. Donald Trump, who appointed three justices, was not did not receive the popular vote. Mitch McConnell would not allow Barack Obama's nominee to replace Justice Scalia to be considered. So we have Justice Gorsuch. Justice Barrett was pushed through at the last minute by the Republican Senate uh, after Justice Ginsburg's death right before the 2020 election. And the so not only were those three justices nominated by a president who didn't themselves himself receive a majority of the popular vote, but they were confirmed by senators who represent collectively many tens of millions of people fewer 
than the senators who voted the other way. Now, all of that is constitutional. I'm not suggesting it's not constitutional, but it's problematic. Uh, if we have, there are reasons why we have a dem, uh, some democratic input, small d democratic input into who's on the court. And these events have really undermined that input and really made the court significantly more uh, d different in terms of its approach to the Constitution than many, if not most, Americans. And I don't think the abortion case is obviously perhaps the most high profile, the one that people are going to feel the most uh, passionate about. But I think we've seen that. We saw that just yesterday with the gun case. Americans favor gun regulation. And this the gun case yesterday makes it harder, uh, not doesn't make it impossible for any gun regulation, but certainly is going to make it much harder for the states and the federal government to regulate guns. And, uh, and is going to make it much that much harder for legislation that Americans collectively say that they want in overwhelming numbers to, to pass and be upheld. I guess there's the final thought here before we let you go. You mentioned yesterday's decision, which is a, a Clarence Thomas majority opinion. And, you know, having covered the court for a few years now, he doesn't generally get the big blockbusters, nor does Alito. They were kind of considered to the far right on the block of the court. And now they've been given two of the most consequential decisions that we've seen in years. And I, I suppose that just kind of goes to show how much the court's been transformed. Absolutely. Uh, it really is in so many ways the Thomas court now. Uh, and we see that, and not just in terms of him writing these, the blockbuster opinion yesterday in the gun case, but we and, and assigning today's opinion to Justice Alito because the chief was not, sure, I don't think, yeah, would have counted uh, in the majority. Um, but you know, there are other ways that his influence is going to be felt for for decades to come. An extraordinarily large number of the judges that Donald Trump appointed to lower courts were Thomas clerks. They clerked for him on the Supreme Court, and they tend to be among the judges who are the most conservative and the most willing to push the envelope really past where the the law currently is uh, to tee things up for the Supreme Court to take them. So, I, I, you know, his influence is tremendous and it's not going to wane anytime soon. Carolyn, thank you so much for joining us today to help break down this, this opinion. Thanks for having me. Now, Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health can probably safely be considered the biggest blockbuster of the term, one that will have massive repercussions and consequences for reproductive rights around the country. But the term is not over. There are seven opinions left waiting to be decided. And Natalie, we get more decisions, at least one more, um, on Monday and possibly more days next week. So I can't wait to, to chat about all that remains on the court's docket before the justices go on summer recess and we close out our season three of the term. That's all right, Jimmy. So see you, see you again next week. Um, thanks so much. Thank you, Natalie. And thank you so much to our listeners. We'd like to thank our producers, Stephen Trader and Kelly Marcano, our executive producer, Amber McKinney, Music for the show comes from Slender Beats, and for more information about all the high court action, go to law360.com slash the term. You can also find us anywhere you listen to podcasts. Just search Law 360 and the term. Thanks for listening.